All right, I'll take your Bibles and turn again to Romans chapter 5. Began chapter 5 last week. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week and we're just going to jump right into it here. So if you would stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Romans 5 Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrate his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, I just uh, call on you right now, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, I recognize, God, that we are in a spiritual battle this morning, that a real war is being raged. And there is a real enemy who doesn't want people to truly live, doesn't want people to be free, doesn't want people to know the truth. So God, I call on you, the mighty warrior that you are, to come and fight this battle. Lord, would you take the scales that the enemy has placed on people's eyes to keep from seeing your truth? Would you unplug their ears to be able to hear your truth for the first time, God, that it changes them for eternity? Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest problems with the church in the United States today that many people agree with is that There just seems to be this stronghold of apathy over it. Apathy is defined as a lack of feeling or emotion, a lack of interest or concern. So there just seems to be this apathetic attitude in a lot of Christians today about their relationship with God. And when the church gets apathetic, then it no longer is effective. And what really ends up happening is that the culture has more of an, of an effect on the church than the church has on the culture. And that's exactly what has happened. And we wonder why our country is in the state that it is in. Well, it's not easy to figure that out when you've got an ineffective church. But the best way to get people to get over their apathy is not for me to stand up here and just twist your arm and tell you how much you don't need to be apathetic. I mean, you can't tell somebody to quit being apathetic in order for them to get over. The best way to not be apathetic is to give somebody something to get excited about. And God has given us something to get extremely excited about. The truth is, Christians should be anything but apathetic because when you see and understand what Jesus has done and what that means for us, I don't believe there's just any way for someone to be apathetic about that, to not feel any emotion at all about that or or be interested at all in it. And so if the church is suffering from apathy, I'm thinking that it's either because we have gotten away from the gospel and have have forgotten what a lot of that really means or 
We just don't really believe it. The first point, if you're following along in the notes there, the cause of apathy towards the gospel is that we either don't know it or we don't believe it. Because if we did, there's just no way you can be apathetic about it because the gospel, what Jesus has done, it demands a response. Now, you can reject it outright or you can make it the central driving force of who you are and what you do. But I'm telling you, it is impossible to just simply be indifferent about it. You've heard me pose the question before, why does the message that got the apostles killed only draw yawns from people today? And I think it's because it's probably a different message altogether. It's not the same one. It's either that or we just simply don't believe it. And so my prayer in the message this morning is that God would take these words that we're looking at in this short text and open our eyes to see this in ways that we never have before. I pray that these truths will hit us in the face as if we are reading and hearing these things again for the very first time. Because I'm telling you right now, this stuff is too good, too incredible, too miraculous to just be indifferent about. I mean, there's so much for us to get excited about just in the 15 words that make up verse 6. Let's look at it again. He says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there's a lot of stuff in just that one sentence, so we'll try to unpack that first for just a minute. Now, the first phrase there refers to our condition apart from Christ, where he says that we were helpless. I was thinking about this and just the way a lot of people think today and it seems like many people view Christianity as just another option on the religious buffet for us to choose from. It's like we've been presented all these different options of religions that we can choose to identify ourselves with, a set of values to follow or whatever for us to believe in, to follow in order to better our lives. And even with some who have chosen Christianity because the culture has affected the church more than it has affected culture, even many people who call themselves Christians have this mindset that uh, this is what works for me. If something else works for you, then that's okay. As long as what is working for whatever we've chosen makes us happy, then that's all that really matters. But that attitude shows a complete failure at understanding the human condition. We spent several weeks looking at how, you know, Paul spells out the human condition in the first three chapters of Romans. And he says that no one is good. Nobody even comes close to being good compared to God's standard. Everyone is guilty. He says that we are lying, murdering, glory thieves, incapable of leaving anything but destruction and chaos in our past, rejecting and belittling the glory of God and completely helpless at doing anything about it. We cannot improve ourselves one iota. We were created with this longing to be in relationship with God, but completely helpless at overcoming the barrier of our sin that causes that relation to be broken. We are stuck in this 
cul-de-sac of despair where we're just helplessly and hopelessly going round and round because the only way to live a life that God accepts is to be in relationship with Him. But we can't be in relationship with Him because we are incapable of living a life that He accepts. In order to be in that relationship, unfortunately, He set a standard that we can't meet and a price that we can't pay. And so if that's the case, if that truly is our condition and we truly are helpless, as the word says here, then tell me how in the world just picking any religious option is going to help anyone. It's not. And you need to hear me say this morning that not even the Christian religion is an option that's going to help you. You're not going to go to heaven because... You chose the Christian religion to follow. You're going to go to heaven only if God chose you and he opened your eyes to the truth that your only hope in this world and the next is in Jesus Christ. And he has become the center and the source of your whole life. If you're just thinking Christianity is just an option that I'm going to follow and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to go through the motions and the rituals and do all these things that society is doing like, like Christians do, there's no hope in that. It's only found in Jesus Christ and knowing that he is your only hope. Next point. Being helpless means that you can't do anything. Something has to be done for you. The word that Paul uses in the Greek there for helpless is the same word that's used in another place in the Bible. In, in John chapter 5, when Jesus and his disciples were walking through Jerusalem just outside the temple, and they came up on the pool of Bethesda, and there were all these sick people and, and handicapped people hanging around this pool because it was believed that at certain times of the year, an angel from heaven would come and stir up the waters, and whoever could get into that water first after they were stirred, they would be healed. And so there was this one man in particular that Jesus was drawn to. It says that he had been lame for 38 years. Jesus asked him if he wanted to be better. And the man said, I can't, I can't get to the pool. I need somebody to carry me down in there, but no one is willing to do that. And the word that it used there to describe that man was the same word that Paul uses here in, in Romans five, six for helpless. I mean, this man needed someone to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. I mean, can you imagine just how miserable that had to have been? Talking about being in the cul-de-sac of despair. I mean, he's laying there right next to, right near the very thing that he believes is going to fix him. I mean, he can almost touch it, but he can't get there. It's just like God's standard. I mean, he's shown us what his standard is, what he accepts, what he requires, but we're unable to get there. We need someone to do for us what we are incapable of doing ourselves. And someone did. The rest of the verse, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, where it says at the right time, those four words have a lot of meaning there. What that means is that this wasn't just some random or spontaneous act of love. 
that Jesus did. This had been planned for a very long time, and that plan was executed to perfection. This isn't the only place that indicates this. You might remember that when Jesus was with his family at the wedding feast in Cana, his mother turned to him when they realized the the wine had, had run out. She wanted him to do something about it, and he said, woman, my time has not yet come. In John 7, Jesus knew that the Jews in Judea wanted to kill him, and so he wouldn't go there to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And he didn't go there because he was afraid to get killed. He didn't go because he said his time had not yet come. If he was to be killed at that time, that would not have fallen in line with the plan that had been in place since before the beginning of time. Then later on, it says the religious leaders wanted to kill him, but the scripture says no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus dying on the cross was divinely planned right down to the very hour that it would happen. Make no mistake about it, the death of Jesus was not some tragic event that man caused and God just miraculously got in there and decided at the last minute to change it into something that was used for good. So that brings up the question, who exactly killed Jesus? You ask any number of people that and some will say, well, the Romans killed him, obviously. Some will say, well, the Jews did, the religious leaders, they're the ones that had him killed. Some will say, Pilate had him killed. But the truth of it is, God killed Jesus. God the Father killed his only son. It's hard for our finite minds to grasp. How do we know that? Scripture tells us as much. In Romans 8, 32, it says, he, did not, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. Acts 2, 23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53 is even more blunt, saying that Jesus was smitten of God in verse 4. In verse 10 says that God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God did not spare his own son because it was the only way for us to be spared. And just as Abraham lifted up the knife over the chest of his son Isaac, spared his life at the last moment because God provided a ram stuck in the thicket, that acted as the substitute, so God the Father lifted up the knife over the chest of his son Jesus, but did not spare him because he was the lamb. He was the substitute. He stood in our place and absorbed God's wrath for the sin that we committed. And what's really mind-blowing about this is the last part of verse 6 that says he died for the ungodly. The word that Paul used there in the Greek means completely destitute of reverence and awe toward God, condemning God. He died for those who were condemning him. This is how Paul was describing our condition in chapter 1, where he says that we were haters of God, wicked, arrogant, boastful, worshiping the created rather than the creator. 
While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for those who were spitting in his face. How incredible is the mercy of God. Last week, we learned what it means for us to have peace with God. Like it talks about in the first verse of chapter 5. And verse 10 says that we were enemies of God. And we looked at several verses in Scripture that shows us God's attitude towards his enemies. And I talked about how our perceptions of God in, in, the, United, in the American church have changed over the, the decades or the centuries. And it's gone from one of this mean old man up in the sky looking to zap anybody who gets out of line all the way over to this all, you know, nothing but love God who accepts everyone and everything, no matter what, everybody's going to get a pass in the end. And I showed you scriptures that paint more of a balanced picture of who God is rather than him being at one end of the extreme or another. And so we looked at all these uh, severe verses about God towards enemies and how he is going to wipe them out and make them a footstool under his feet. But in no way did I mean to insinuate that in any of that, God's love was absent. And so here's the question. Does God love his enemies? In all those horrific verses we read, does God love them? Good question, isn't it? Now think about this. What did Jesus say that we needed to do towards our enemies? Love them. He said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. So is he going to tell us to do something that isn't in his own nature? No. If he didn't love his enemies, he would not have done for us what he did. Verse 7 says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Soldiers die for their country because they love it, because freedom is something that is worth dying for, but not everyone is willing to do that. That is just a small segment of our population that is willing to do that or that has done that. Some people are willing to die for a good cause. Some would even die and sacrifice, them, sacrifice themselves for somebody else, but that's actually pretty rare. And the few who have done that or are willing to do that, we hold those people in high esteem. I mean, they are worthy of the honor and praise that we give them for making such sacrifices. How much more than for someone who died for wicked? For someone who died for somebody that didn't deserve being died for. I mean, if we could see our condition apart from Christ through God's eyes and we could step back away from that situation and just look down on what all was going on, we would say, no way, God, no way. Do not send Jesus down there. Do not send the only innocent son of God down there for those people. They are the last ones in the universe who would deserve that. And I've always thought that that's probably what the angels were thinking. Really, God, for them? You're going to do that? Incredible, mind-blowing truth, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I've counseled many couples where the husband tells the wife that he loves her all the time, but she just doesn't really believe that because 
he never actually shows it, never really demonstrates that love other than the words that come from his mouth. And guys, I can tell you, you, you can tell your wife you love her all you want. But if all you do at the house is sit around and watch TV and play video games while she cooks, cleans, and takes care of the kids, and you're not really affectionate at all towards her, and you're always wanting to do your own thing and never asking her what she is wanting to do, you tell her you love her all you want to, but it's going to be really hard for her to believe that. Because when we truly love someone, we, we demonstrate that. Eventually, she's going to say something about it, and when she does, there's going to be this big blow-up afterwards because this all of a sudden has blindsided you because you thought everything was just hunky-dory, A-OK, because it was in your world. You just weren't paying attention to hers. And then you'll end up in my office going, well, I don't understand what the problem is. I tell her I love her all the time. Or the guy who said, I told her I loved her the day that we got married and that if anything changed, I'd let her know. Here's the deal, guys. Anybody can say they love someone. That's not hard. If you really do, you're going to display that in somehow. You're going to act on that because love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It is an action. It's like Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Again, it wasn't a threat. It wasn't, if you love me, you better do this. You will, because that love is going to be the motivator, the motor in you that makes you act. Love changes us. So many people struggle with this feeling of not being loved, and I know some who have prayed to God, asking him, God, would you just give me a sign that somebody loves me? Just give me any sign that you love me. People who have been on the brink of committing suicide, they've been so depressed and just prayed, God, please give me a sign. And if that's you in here this morning, I want you to listen to something. You need to take this next note that's there in your bulletin, Fill it out and put it somewhere where you can read it every day. And that is this. God has given a sign of his love for me. It is the sign of the cross. You really shouldn't need any other sign than that because no greater love has ever been demonstrated towards anyone than what Jesus did. How great is it? Well, in John 15, 13, Jesus said, there is no greater love than one who lays down his life for his friends. But his love was greater than that because Jesus didn't just die for his 12 friends. He died for his enemies. His love goes so far beyond anything that we can ever experience or walk in in our relationships. So far beyond anything that we can even grasp in our own human minds. The Holy Spirit has got to reveal that to us. Verse 9 and 10 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Once again, Paul is just reassuring the security that we have in Jesus Christ for eternity. 
security of the believer and that nothing can change that. And Paul does this often in his letters. I mean, just last week, we looked at a verse right above this that just was assuring us of our salvation in Jesus. And one of the reasons Paul does this, just keeps reiterating and reassuring this fact, is because under the old covenant system, before Jesus came, I mean, one status and relationship with God was anything but secure, anything but stable. Every time somebody sinned, they had to go to the temple and pay for that. They had to offer a sacrifice in order to cover that sin. And so there was this constant sin and sacrifice, sin and sacrifice, sin and sacrifice in order to remain in good standing with God. Not only that, but there were all these rules and rituals that you had to follow and observe. It was a lot to keep up with. And so uh, people were like thinking, well, my goodness, always... um, eat up with the anxiety of, have I done enough? Did I commit a sin that I forgot about and I haven't made a sacrifice for yet? Did I go through that ritual just the right way? Did I follow all the right rules? You know, constantly worried that maybe they haven't done enough in the end. And so their their status with God was anything but secure. Look, if our salvation is based on us, and what we do, and how we act, and what we say, then today it is not very secure. It is on shaky ground. If it hinges on me, I know I'm in trouble because I know how much I fail. I know how much I let other people down, and so I know I'm going to let God down. And I, I know that if it's about managing my behavior good enough for, to remain saved, I cannot manage my behavior for very long. I can't if that's what it's about. The good news is this, the next point. Our security isn't based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus did. And here's what Paul's saying in verse 9 and 10. It's like if God did something so good and so glorious for sinners, for people who are his enemies, how much more will he do for those who are now right with him? You following that? See, apart from Christ, we were enemies of God. We were outside anything that had anything good to do with God. Outside of his graces, outside of his acceptance, outside of everything that makes us right with him. But even in that sorry state... He killed his son so that he wouldn't have to kill us. And when we know that that is our only hope, then he makes us right. Now we are in his graces, in his favor, in his acceptance. And so the the thing is, if he did something so incredible for us when we were outside of him, how much more do you think he'll do for us when we are in him? A lot. I mean, if he did all that while we were guilty, how much more now that we are innocent? I mean, you really think he's going to allow the very thing that he paid such a high price for you to have for you to lose that? He's not. Because your standing is not based on you, it's based on Jesus. There's no way for you to ever be outside of his graces, of his forgiveness, of his acceptance of his love for while we were enemies while we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been now reconciled we shall be saved 
by his life. It doesn't say we might be saved if you do this, this, and this. It says we shall be saved. That is a promise of God and his promises do not fail. If you have truly been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, and you are in Christ, nothing can change that. This verse is one of the most precious in the Bible because it is the foundation of the all-encompassing promise of our future is that the Son of God bore in His body all of my punishment, all of my guilt, all of my condemnation and blame and fault and corruption so that I may stand before a holy and great God, clean, forgiven, accepted, justified, and the beneficiary of unspeakable pleasures forever at His right hand. That is good news. That's something to be excited about. And finally, verse 11 And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Two words I want to highlight there. Reconciliation. I find it's interesting the way that Webster's Dictionary defines it. It says to cause a group, uh, to cause people or groups to be friendly again after being in disagreement. It's what we were with God and we've been brought Back into him. And then remember last week I said exult means to take pride in, to get excited about. Exult is the exact opposite of apathy. We should exult. We should get excited about, excited about the fact that we were outside of God. And under his wrath, we have been spared through the blood of Jesus. Made us friends. And not only friends, but sons and daughters of the king. I want to close by reading part of a letter that I got Friday. This was after I'd, you know, put this message together. And this letter goes right along with it. And it was written by Dudley Hall, who you've heard me talk about before. He's one of my mentors and leads the um, network of churches, the Kerygma Network that we're a part of. And... um, Part of this goes right along with what I was saying earlier about the just the ineffective church because of our apathy and, and what it takes to, to change things. Listen to this. He says, many are calling for revival, but if their revival is merely a return to a previous day, it will not help. We are right for a new awakening when eyes open to the already finished work of Jesus on behalf of his people. Some long for more of the early fire and brimstone preaching of times past. I don't. I long for the eye-opening vision of a Savior who has fulfilled all that previous hope envisioned. I pray for Christians to become so enthralled with His grandeur that they lose their insistence on personal glory. Since I believe that this is what the Father wants, I wake expectantly each day, eager to proclaim the truth that caused the early church to explode in influence. I know it cost all the apostles their lives, but they testify that it was worth it. It was worth it. I long to walk and work with those who agree with them. What Jesus has done and what that means for us 
is the most incredible thing you will ever hear or learn this side of heaven. There's no way to be apathetic about it. There's just not. And so if something is not moving inside of you when you hear the sound of truth, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to awaken that in you, to open your eyes, because that's the only thing that can change things. I want us to be a church that's so excited about what Jesus has done that we can't contain it. And it doesn't just remain in these walls once a week, but it affects our homes, our works, everywhere that we go. Even if it costs us our jobs, even if it costs us our friendships, even if it costs us our lives, it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. God, the truth is many of us just don't understand how worth it, it real, worth it, it really is. Because there's things in this world that we would just rather not lose. God, I pray that this truth will become so real to us that nothing compares to it. And we can say what Paul did, that any other achievement, anything else I have gained in this world, I consider trash in light of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. and Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own gained through the law, but righteousness that comes through faith. In Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Lord, would you make that real? I can't do that. As creative as I can make a message and way to put words together and use stories and analogies, God, only you can make this truth real to us. Only you can open our eyes to see it and our ears to hear it. God, soften our hearts to be a receptive vessel for this truth. Would you transform our minds, God? Just wash it in the renewing of your word and your truth. God, just lay us out there to you and say, have your way. God, we're helpless. We are helpless at overcoming our own apathy. We need you to do for us what we are incapable of doing ourselves. And so, Jesus, we look to you as our only hope. Would you come now, glorify yourself in our lives, in this church. In your awesome and glorious name we pray, amen.